Hi, I'm David Goforth, pastor at Grace Baptist Church. So glad that you're taking the time to listen to this podcast. And I want to let you know we're here to help you. If you have any questions, please visit our website, gbcwc.org, and contact us. We'd love to help. Let's take your Bibles, if you would, turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we are going to continue our study. As we are looking at pondering the path of our feet, where has our culture invaded our Christianity? And where has it gotten us off of the correct path? And we looked a couple of weeks ago, we began by looking here at uh, the, the problem of racism. And I want to just make sure that we always set the table and we're always ready to understand exactly what's going on. I want you to be very, very careful. There is so much that can get misconstrued between the speaking and hearing. Uh, There are filters that I filter through my mind as I say things, and there are filters that you filter through your mind as you hear things. I I want you to listen carefully to what we go through, and if you have questions, I beg you please to ask them, okay? Sometimes you're going to hear me say a sentence, or you're going to hear me start a sentence, and you're going to think, oh, I've heard somebody say this before, and it's going to be something that you've heard other people say. Don't draw conclusions. Hear me out. Listen. You may hear me say something you've never heard before, but don't draw conclusions immediately. Hear me out. And then I want you to be like the Christians in Berea that were more noble than the Christians in Thessalonica. Why were they more noble than the Thessalonians? Because they searched the scriptures to see if those things were so. My desire is for you to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Last time we talked about this, we just talked about the idea that in the Bible, there is not a biblical support for the idea of different races. And the idea of races, and this may be a chicken and egg type of argument. Um, do you know what I mean when I say that? Which came first type of argument? Uh, what came first? The idea of races or racism. I personally believe that racism came first and it sprouted this idea of numerous different races. Uh, you may disagree, that, that doesn't matter quite as much, but there is this idea that there are different types of people out there. That is not a biblical idea. We looked at that, but then we also looked at the reality that in scriptures, there has been a problem of racism since the very beginning. Now uh, we looked at, I mean, in, as early on as with Joseph, the Egyptians didn't like the Semites because they were shepherds. Uh, and, and they didn't like shepherds, they put them in a different place. And you have, you have Miriam and Aaron talking bad about Moses' wife because she was of a different culture and she looked differently. And so it's been a problem throughout scriptures. It's a current, it's a common problem. And so we're going to jump right into it. And there's two things I want you to get tonight because I don't want to rush through this. I want you to get this two things that I want you to get. The first, I want you to see the clear command of scriptures. And then I want you to understand the importance of distrusting mold, your mold. What I mean by your mold, I'm not talking about something that's on the cheese or bread in your pantry. I'm not talking about what's growing under your house. I'm talking about the structures that formed you and your thinking. Distrusting your mold. And, and we'll, we'll get there in a second. There's two things we're going to look at tonight. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll jump into James chapter 2. Lord, bless this time. Give us wisdom as we look into your word. Lord, help this to be instructive. Lord, help this to be corrective. Help this to be encouraging. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be drawn closer to you, to be made more in your son's image as a result of looking into your work. Lord, may it be profitable. Thank you. Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit's at work. We love you. Amen. James chapter 2. Look at verse 1 if you would. The Bible says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, 
with respective persons. This respective persons, this is one Greek word. It's used four times in the New Testament. Each time in your King James Bible, it is translated as respective persons. Later on in this uh, uh, passage, you're going to see the verb form of this. Don't be a respecter of persons. Uh, But it's basically the same verb. And it has the idea of either favoritism or partiality or one very, I think, the closest to the definition of what that word would be is to give favor based on appearance. Now, in James chapter 2, the immediate illustration that is given is usually right away we jump on and we say, okay, rich and poor. So don't just be nice to somebody because they show up, and that's exactly what James is talking about. They show up in this nice apparel, they show up in this area uh, where they look better, and we give them more attention because they fit in. But the idea is that we are not to simply look on the exterior of a person and either gain or restrict favor based on that appearance alone. In fact, As Christians, we're told that God is not a respecter of persons. He does not practice that favoritism based on appearance. Now, look down at verse 8. This is the clear command that I want you to get. The Bible says, If ye fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. James says, If you get what God taught, he said, Love your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. If you get that and you do that, good on you. You do very, very well. Why would James say that? Because he's commending them for something that is, is not the norm. That's the second part of what I want to talk to you about here this evening. The first part is this, first, this clear command. The clear command is you are not to have the faith of Jesus Christ with respect to persons, with favor that is given based on appearance. Look at verse 9. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin. And are convinced of the law as transgressors. So I don't think anyone would argue with the idea that simply judging somebody based on the look, based on their socioeconomic class, based on the color of their skin, based on uh, different appearances. It may be the length of their hair. It may be the type of clothing they're wearing. Any type of thing that is just the outward appearance. God says, if that is the determiner, if that is what you judge somebody on, that is a what? I want to make sure we get this. What is that called? Right there in James chapter 2. Most of us got it. It's sin. Now, why is that so difficult? Well, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that man looks where? Now, before we, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pick on you. I can't look anywhere else initially. I cannot see anything but your outward appearance. Your outward appearance tells me if you're tired, if you're happy, if you're angry, if you're sad. Man looks on the outward appearance. That is is what we look at. But what God is telling us is God is telling us if we judge a person and we place value on a person based on this outward appearance alone, we sin. And so the clear command of scripture is that you cannot treat people differently based on anything about their appearance. Height, weight, color of their skin, type of hair, type of no hair, doesn't matter. We are not to judge. Now that's the first thing that I want you to get. I think that is a clarity and I don't think that there are too many people here that would say, no, no, pastor, go forth. I really want to argue for the right to be able to judge people based on the color of their skin. I'm going to assume tonight that there aren't 
anybody in this room that would stand up and say, no, no, there are certain things that we should judge based on appearance. Because God, he, he lays it out. If you have respect of persons, you sin, you commit sin. That's the first thing. But I want you to understand the second aspect of it. And that is, I, I, I need you for this and for everything, honestly, but for this in particular, I need you to learn to distrust your mold. What do I mean by distrusting your mold? What happens at salvation? 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, you know this verse. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. And what's happening? All things are becoming new. So what happens at salvation is that Christ comes in and he completely transforms. Now, complete transformation, again, this is an area where we're going to be tempted to look where? On the outside. And we're going to be tempted to look at things and say, okay, this, this has happened, this has happened, okay, so they have transformed. But understand, there is an individual who is absolutely in charge of how this world operates. He is called the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? The devil delineates how he is going to try to use his limited power in his fight against God. Now, I don't believe that anybody in this room would stand up and say, well, Pastor Goforth, you're going to have to spend a lot of time convincing me that racism is a part of the course of this world. Do I need to spend any time convincing you that racism is part of the prince of the power of the air's plan for this world? Or are most of you convinced of that? Okay, all right? So if I were to say to you that there is a, pro- that there is a problem with racism, and I, there, there's, there's not going to be too many people that say, I don't know. But what's amazing, if you will sit down and say, okay, if we're going to look at this transformation, and I were to ask you, okay, how has God transformed you from here to here? Many times when we start talking about this area of racism, many folks will say, well, I've never really. And that's a common belief. And the reason that I believe it is a common belief is because of what happens in Romans chapter 12, where we're told to uh, not be conformed, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. You see, Romans 6 says, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life, meaning a different way of living. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Okay? So we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Amen? We have been rescued from the mire. We've been pulled out. We have been ex agarazzoed purchased out of the slave market of sin. And we've been placed into the family of God. But that change, that all things that are being becoming new, is not automatic. There is participation required on our part. That is what we call sanctification. How does that happen? Turn to Ephesians 4. If you have your Bible turned there, we're going to go there for a couple of seconds. Ephesians 4. As we teach through this. The Bible teaches that, listen, everything is going to be taken care of. And it's going to be renewed into the image of Christ. As uh, Brother Brown said just a few minutes ago, so many different colors, so many different languages, a picture of heaven. There is not going to be any racism in heaven. 
But what I'm trying to postulate to you tonight is that because our culture is so mired in racism, for us to think that our salvation has nothing to do with that and has no renewal to do with that because we really didn't have a problem with that is probably, probably suspect. Now, what I'm not doing, I'm not, please understand, I am not standing up here and saying, you all need to stand up in front of a group of people and say, hi, my name is David and I'm a racist. But you need to understand that the scope of the world that you were rescued from has a pattern, has a plan. And part of that is that, and that needs to be on the docket of things that God needs to transform. You need to distrust the way that you think. Now, some of you are going, all right, you're a Yankee. You're going to start picking on Southerners. You're going to try to get us not to be Southerners. You're going to try, no, no, this is not a Southern Northern thing. But yes, I am trying to get you not to be who you are. I'm trying to get you to be who he died for you to be. That's the goal of Christianity, is for us to be made into the image of Christ. Now, here's the amazing thing. That is going to look different because God created us all differently. It's not going to be the same cross-culturally. There are things that that we have been pressed into a mold. I'll get to those in a little bit. But are you in Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look at it. Ephesians 4. Here is the command from Ephesians 4. Look at verse 17. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, this I say therefore, in verse 17, Ephesians 4, and testify in the Lord that she henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. He is not picking on them as far as being Gentiles because of their race. He's using the word Gentiles as meaning those that are separated from Christ. He says, don't walk like you used to walk. And how did they used to walk? In the vanity of their mind. Now that word vanity, when we hear the word vanity, Now, you either think of something that is in your bathroom that you get ready at in the morning, if you think of that as a vanity, or you think of somebody who thinks a lot of themselves. They're so vain. But what this word means in the New Testament, the vanity of your mind, that is something that is devoid of truth. So do not walk in this idea of being devoid in truth. Don't walk like the unsafe folks walk in the vanity, the devoid of truth. Okay? This just wandering through, following the prince of the power of the air, following the course of this world, not stopping to say, hey, what is the biblical understanding? Look at verse 18. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness and greediness. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get you to see that when God rescues us from sin, there is a huge amount of transformation that has to happen. Amen? Now, here's what maybe some of us think. Some of you were saved later in life. You have no problem understanding that your life had to be radically transformed. Some of you struggled with drugs. Some of you struggled with alcohol. Some of you struggled with all kinds of wickedness. And when God saved you, he rescued you out of that. And you know what it's like to be a wicked, lascivious individual. But some of you were saved in the midst of a Christian home at a young age. You hadn't developed a lot of lasciviousness at five years of age. You'd not yet begun to deal drugs You had not yet actually physically murdered somebody. And because of that, some of us just naturally think that God, he had to do some work on them. He just kind of had to spit shine me up a little bit. Now, we don't say that out loud, but we kind of think, well, in my house, I grew up in a Christian home. 
I mean, I grew up in a, listen, uh, folks talk about, I hear kids all the time talk about, I don't want to go to Christian college, the rules are so tight. When I went to Christian college, the rules relaxed. I was like excited, I was like, freedom! You know, so I thought it was wonderful because my parents had all kinds of rules, so it wasn't a difficulty for me. And some of us think, because we've grown up in Christianity, we think, well, I don't have to be that transformed. So it's not something that's unbelievable. All things are becoming new. I was kind of all just sort of already new. I was really half Baptist already. And God just kind of moved me into full Baptist mode. And because of that, we embrace some things, I believe, unwittingly. Let's look, at, look down at verse 22. Let me, let me show you this. Verse 22. Paul tells us this is how we participate in this change. We put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt, according to the... What's that next word? What kind of lust? Who's, who's being deceived in that verse? Right. See, we think deceitful lust. Well, that's when I lie to somebody. No, the old man is trying to deceive you. Me, it's trying, to, it's trying to fool, go forth. And we have to put off this old man. How do we know who the old man is? There's only one way. We have to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Look at, look at verse 23. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. How does that happen? Well, Romans 12 tells us, gives us another hint. It says, don't be conformed, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew the mind? You renew the mind by studying the mind of Christ. How are we going to know what God thinks unless we study what he thinks? And this is what he thinks. And so, and some of you say, well, Pastor, go for it. I don't really see how that mind renewal stuff, oh, you've had mind renewal happen already to you. We talked a little bit about that this morning, okay? You actually think that somebody by themselves got up from the dead. That's a renewed mind. That's not normal thinking. Now, for some of you, you've been a Christian so long, you're like, well, of course, of course. No, no, not of course. That's renewed mind. Not only that, but in churches, preachers stand up and say, hey, you know that hard-earned money that you've gotten? Give it away. And a lot of us in this room go, yeah, that makes sense. Do you know why that makes sense? Because your mind has been renewed. It does not make sense to people just to give stuff away. Okay, the Bible says when you are persecuted for righteousness sake, what's the response supposed to be? Rejoice. Some of us don't rejoice yet. Our mind still needs to be renewed there. But the Bible says, man, rejoice when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. There's all kinds of things in God's word that you have already taken and he has transformed your thinking. Just the fact that you go and sit and listen to preaching. To them that perish, do you know what this is? Foolishness. Hey, what are you doing this Sunday? I'm going to go sit down and have somebody yell at me for half an hour. And I'm probably going to end up giving them money for it. Really? Oh, yeah. Sure am. Might even do it twice. What is wrong with you? Nothing's wrong with me. I enjoy it. You enjoy it? What is wrong with you? But it does it makes sense to us. Because the preaching of the cross to us is wonderful. God's word being proclaimed is a joyous thing. So you've already experienced some of this renewing. So you put off the old man. You're renewed through learning the thinking of God's word. And then you do what? Verse 24, put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now here's the problem, okay? Now this is a little bit of philosophy, but I want you to get this. One of the reasons why we often think that racism isn't a problem is because we think in static 
arenas instead of something that is, um, is dynamic. In other words, we look at the way things used to be and we look at the activities of racism And if the activities of racism are not the same, we tend to think, well, then we don't have as big a problem of racism. Okay, you're still looking at me like I have a duck on my head, so let me see if I can... What what I mean is, as a culture, we have progressively, since we started as a nation hundreds of years ago, we have progressively moved through stages of racism and have stopped some of the outward, volatile, hateful practices of racism. But that does not mean that racism has been cured. Let me, let me see if I can give you an illustration, okay? If I was a person, let's say I was a person um, who lived in the 1920s, 1930s, okay? And I was alive in the 30s as an 80 or as a 90-year-old, old enough to remember pre-Civil War America. I would be able to say and think in my mind, now before the Civil War, we bought and sold people like they were property. We don't do that anymore, right? But was racism conquered in 1930s? Can we look back at that? Now, if you were alive in the 1930s, I'm not trying to pick on the 1930s, but if we were to look back at the 1930s, we would not have said, well, we don't look back and say, yeah, racism was, no, racism had just shifted. Were, were people allowed to be bought and sold as property anymore? No. But the problem of racism was there, and it was showing up in different ways. Do you understand what I'm saying? We look at certain activities, and we say, okay, well, this. Well, now we live in a post-civil rights society where we have different laws that have been codified, and we have different things that we can look at, and we can say, hey, and here's, and here's this happens so frequently, is we look at things, and we say, well, there can't be a problem in racism because it's not like it used to be. But do you think that the devil truly has given up on the course that he has laid out for this world? Do you think the devil is no longer a racist? I'm getting a little too excited. I don't mean to yell at you. Do you, do you honestly think the devil is like, you know what, that's really, that's really not good to judge people based on the color of their skin. I need to stop that. Think he's done with that? No. But yet there are so many Christians who think, well, it's not like it was in the Jim Crow days. It's not like it was in this. And so racism has been conquered. But the problem of racism has not been conquered. The problem of racism has been conquered in the cross, but it has not been conquered in our culture. And what happens is because we are products of our culture, we tend to think like our culture. I'm going to risk something here, but I want to just give you an illustration. Okay? This is a southern northern thing, but I'll just give you an illustration to stay with me. Okay? I was 22 years old, traveling back from South Carolina, or from Pensacola to South Carolina. That was still the time when I was trying to trick uh, Day Kelly into marrying me. So I would come up here as often as I could on the weekend, and because I didn't have a lot of money, I had to try to get other people to ride with me in the car. And I got different folks. I would let the word out, hey, you know, heading up to South Carolina this weekend. If you'd like to go, you just have to help out with gas. And there were lots of people that had plenty of money that they would help me out. And so I would get, and I was in the car with two people. I remember we were driving along. And these two people were history majors. 
They were education majors with a history something, okay? And so we started talking about history. And I said, oh, what's your favorite time in history? And we were talking about different times in history. Because my favorite time in history is way, way back, like uh, Dark Ages or, or Middle Ages, different things like that. And they were talking about it. And we started talking about different stuff. And then one of them made the statement. They said, well, you're from the North. Well, then you probably don't understand the real reason for the Civil War. And I chuckled and said, everybody knows the real reason for the Civil War. And this was the first time I heard this. Now, those of you that don't know, I was raised in Michigan. Okay? You say, well, pastor, go forth. You keep reminding us of that. And if you keep reminding us of that, we will run you out of the church. (laughs) Okay? But I did not know that there was a different idea out there until I was 22 in my vet. I was on I-20 and I was driving. I'm driving along, person sitting next to me here, got another person in the back seat of the vet. Remember, it was a Chevette. So they're in the back seat of the Chevette. We're driving along and I said, the real reason, what do you think I as a northerner said was the reason for the Civil War? Slavery. What do you think the two Southerners informed me the real reason of the Civil War was? States' rights. And I was shocked. I said, yes, it was states' rights to have slaves. And they said, no, you dumb Northerns don't know how to study history. And I said, you Johnny Reb Rednecks don't have a clue what reality is. And right there in the vet, guess what we had? Civil War number two. They almost had to walk from Georgia over to Lexington County. I could, but I can remember the shock on my face as I looked at them and thought, now, some of you are sitting here, and some of you may be sitting there and going, well, it is states' rights. Well, well understand something. I'm not, trying to, I'm, I'm not going to get into the debate of what it was. What I'm trying to get you to see is that I had a completely different perspective. Well, what kind of church did you go to? Baptist church, Christian school. We went through this whole conversation in the car. I'm like, what, what textbooks were you reading? I mean, were they written by somebody named Crow? What was, what, what are you, we, we, we had the same textbooks. We both used Becca Book and Bob Jones curriculum. Oh, well, and I'm like, well, we're talking about a different civil war. I'm talking about the one with Abe Lincoln and, you know, where there was, yeah, yeah, that's the one. And you may sit there and you may say, hey, there's no, and I'm not here to argue whether it was states' rights or not. But the reality is, there were completely two different, complete different perspectives. And we had no idea that our culture had forced us into a way of thinking. We had no clue. Now, what do you think helped us get past that? There were a certain number of things that were similar between the two of us. And so, okay, well, we, we went to the same college. We were both headed back to the same place. Uh, one, we were all surrendered for ministry. There were lots of touch points of things that we could talk about, but we could not talk about that without getting into a heated debate, and I could not believe the difference. And for us to think, you know what, Pastor, go forth. Just, well, what am I saying? I'm saying that I did not realize the mold that I had been pressed into just growing up where I grew up. I thought everybody thought the way I think because I think the way I think, and that's the way everybody else thinks. And then I met somebody who didn't think that way, and I went, what? No, you can't think that way. 
And what I'm trying to get you to realize is that we too often get into the extracurricular thing and we try to identify and we try to fight about things instead of stepping back and saying, let me find out and let me individually interact with this person and see if there is something that I need to put off. And see, instead of arguing about whether or not if black lives matter or if blue lives matter or if all lives matter, and we get into these fighting back and forth, and the world is putting us into its mold, which is let's fight, instead of the Bible's mold, which is let's enjoy fellowship, let's enjoy that koinonia, and let me talk to somebody, and let me find out what they're going through, and let me ask the Lord to show and describe to me the reality of how I'm thinking and if it is biblical and if it is correct and if it's not. And taking a step back and saying, hey, maybe it's possible that I don't understand something. Let, let me just make, I'm going to, I've already poked the bear a little bit, so I'm going to poke it some more. Do you remember when we fought about the Confederate rebel flag a number of years ago? I'm not distraught over how the South Carolina legislature handled that particular situation But so many Christians let it be politicized instead of talking to individuals and finding out what it meant to individuals. You say, well, well, Pastor Gover, we had to because we had to fight for... No. What's the number one thing that we're supposed to guard here at Grace Baptist Church? It's our unity. Our unity, the gospel, truth. Jesus Christ prayed for our unity. But we let that become an area of division. And as a Christian, it was more important to some Christians that we wear this Confederate battle flag than that we understand how that might be interpreted by other Christians. We lost the perspective. I have had the privilege most of my adult life for just a few months when I was 18, I worked a secular job. I worked in a foundry in Detroit. For just about three and a half months, I knew what it was like to go into a foundry with unsaved men, listen to their unsaved talking, look at the unsaved things that they did, see the discussions. And let me tell you something, it completely changed my perspective when I came to church. Because when I was at Lawford Fabricating, I was surrounded by filth. I was surrounded by wickedness. And the entire time I was on defense and I was on edge because they were looking for anything. Because not only did they know I was a Christian, they knew I had surrendered to be a preacher. And so they were looking for stuff to throw at me. And I loved coming into Wednesday night church and just going. I, I loved the fact that I could go into the restrooms at my church and not have to run a gauntlet of sin that was hidden in the restrooms. I was thankful for that. Because when I came to church, I wanted to worship. I didn't want to deal with the stuff that I had to deal with when I was out there. Well, let me ask you a question. Should it be any different in any other situation? Shouldn't, when we come here, we be so focused on ministering and encouraging, strengthening other brothers and sisters in Christ that we find out if there's some battles, if there's some struggles that we can help them with? But we lost our perspective on that Confederate battle flag. And it was more about states' rights, and it was more about heritage, not hate, and it was more about political agendas than some of the people that we went to church with that had a completely different perspective when they saw that flag. And many times, 
the folks that I spoke to did not care about those individual perspectives. They were wanting to preserve their heritage. And we have to understand, we have to understand, we need to stop identifying with those worldly, political, divisive arenas and say, Lord, what would you have me do? And start talking and start interacting. The two things, and we're done. It's gone longer than I anticipated. But the two things that I want you to get from tonight, number one, understand the clear command of Scripture, and number two, learn to distrust your mold. There is not a culture. If you say, hey, Pastor Goldworth, I I really grew up not really racist. I used to think that. I was one of the few white kids in my neighborhood. I really thought if anybody was not racist, it was me. Because I was the outlier in Pontiac where I grew up. So I thought, hey, I'm I'm clear. that, And I used to walk around thinking, well, I can't be racist because I was the minority. I know what it's like to be a minority. No, I didn't. I had been pushed into a mold. And I'm begging you to step back from your mold that you've been placed into and say, God, what is it? And here's the thing that's difficult. For you to understand other folks' mold and other folks' opinion of your mold, you have to have loving conversations, loving, humble conversations with them. Not centered around what lives matter. Not centered around some political agenda. Not trying to defend this or defend that, but hey, you're in my community. My first number one job is to show you Christ. So let me, let me talk to you and let me find out and let me interact with you and ask, hey, what are some things that I can do and that I can help and that I can show Christ to you? Learn to distrust your mold. And, and the reason I say that is that because this life needs to be a metamorphosized, a transformed situation. I'm not trying to get you to be somebody else. I'm trying to get you to understand God has called us to be like Christ. Let's walk with him. All right, let's stand. We'll have a word of prayer. This is not the kind of message we have an invitation for. And I understand that. But let me encourage you to now like the Thessalonians, sorry, like the Bereans, not like the Thessalonians, investigate. Look into it. I praise the Lord. I've had folks that love me enough to call me on some of the racist crud that I have done. My wife has done that. I praise the Lord that she has been willing to say, hey, preacher, you say this, then why does this come out of your mouth? Why is this acted out? And don't think, ladies, that I looked at her and said, hey, praise the Lord, Dave, for your ministry to me. Guess what you think the first thing I did? defended, made excuses, tried to make it her fault. All the same things. The Lord used it because someone was willing to say, hey, careful, learn to distrust that mold. Let's pray and we'll go. Lord, thank you for your love. I ask that you be with us as we go throughout this week. Lord, help us to be focused on you. Help us to follow you. Help us to enjoy your redemption. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to truly understand what it is that you want us to know about all things becoming new. Lord, help us not to be more loyal to a region, more loyal to a political party, more loyal to anything than we are to you and your word. Lord, give us that love. Thank you. Lord, we love you. In Christ's precious name, amen. Let me ask, let me let the Browns head on out to the table so that folks can meet you out there. Fellas, we've got the plates at the back, so don't forget your retiring offering. Or if you want to give online, you can just jump on Faith Life 
And on there, you can put love offering. We'll get it from tonight, and we'll know what it goes for. Thanks for coming. We will see you all later. Bye-bye. Really quick, just wanted to remind everyone who's helping out with Vacation Bible School and Beat the Heat, there is a meeting. It'll be really quick, next door in the Hanson. So if you're helping out with VBS, Beat the Heat, we'll start in just a few minutes next door in the Hanson.